Welcome to What's Up with Betsy Johnson, a podcast from a longtime Oregon legislator and keen political observer discussing what is right and wrong with government, politics, and public policy. By the time folks hear this, the legislative days will be over. But this is kind of the precursor to the short session you have in the even-numbered years, which goes, what, 35 days, starts in February, is done uh, by mid-March. And so, first of all, as a part of the legislature, you've been through these legislative days. How would you characterize them? What are they? Uh, legislative days are a chance for committees to do some pretty perfunctory work. Um, they are a chance for agencies to come in and set the stage for how much money they want in February. The short session is not a budget session. Uh, just to remind people that are unfamiliar with Oregon's politics, our legislature meets every odd numbered year. And in that odd numbered year, they meet for roughly six months and they do agency budgets and they hear testimony and they contemplate policy bills. And those are our big legislative sessions. We added the short session. I was against it. I was finally convinced that because we're tied so inexorably to the federal government at both the pocketbook and the policy level that we needed to have this short session as just a check in prior to the commencement of the long session. It would be a chance to preview uh, agency performance against legislatively approved budgets. It would be a chance to introduce legislative concepts that might be taken up in the long session. It was an opportunity to deal with real crises, paying our firefighting bills uh, for conflagration, those sorts of things. The short session instead has metastasized into an absolute debacle. It's a it's a mulligan or a redo on every crappy piece of legislation that didn't make it through the long session uh, now thinks that they can get a second bite at the apple. So what couldn't get accomplished in six months now is gonna get accomplished in six weeks, which is just magical thinking. Uh, it has resulted in a lot of really shitty legislation being pushed through with little or no hearings because just the time constraints make it virtually impossible for a complicated concept to be introduced in a committee, heard in a committee, potentially amended in a committee, voted out of the committee, go to the floor of the appropriate body, whether it's the House or the Senate, then if it passes, transfer it over to the, the other side of the building and repeat the process. It means that oftentimes these very complicated concepts get one hearing which I think is grotesquely unfair and a virtually irresponsible way to pass legislation. When I was still in the legislature, I fought against passing major pieces of legislation in the short session because it is a, a, a prescription to shut the public out of the debate, to have inadequate um, give and take on what amendments might be uh, uh, germane to make the bill more acceptable or God forbid more bipartisan uh, and instead allowed the majority party, in this case, the Democrats to just stuff bad policy down Oregon's throat. So legislative days are predictable days when the legislature will be in session. The Senate comes into session long enough to do the business of the Senate, like do some um, appointments to boards and commissions. Uh, the legislature has not swathed itself in glory doing those appointments because our boards and commissions are so lopsided 
that these boards and commissions that are functionally the boards of directors for state agencies where agency business ought to be robustly debated instead turn into just rubber stamps for more crap policy. Uh, I would call out our board of forestry with notable exceptions serving on that board, but they serve in the minority as an example of what a completely lopsided uh, board will do to decimate the economies of counties in Northwest Oregon, but that's another story in another time. So the Senate comes into session, they do some of the prescribed Senate business, committees meet, uh, they hear various and sundry things uh, about pending legislation. Ways and Means is active, taking reports from state agencies, allowing state agencies to apply for federal grants. They have to have legislative permission to do so. And the full complement of Ways and Means subcommittees doesn't meet. They divvy up those things that need to be heard in a committee to some of the committees rather than all of them meeting. Full Ways and Means will meet and they will act on a consent agenda that are non-controversial things. And then they will take reports and acknowledge the receipt of those reports and in some cases may spend a little bit of money. I glanced at the Full Ways and Means Committee agenda and I'm dumbstruck to know why we're, for example, doing HVAC uh, heating and air conditioning improvements in our Oregon Department of Transportation building, which was not that many years ago, completely remodeled at enormous expense. And I'm just curious what's wrong with their HVAC systems now that need legislative action. Um, so that's what ledge days are. So they're there for three days and um, uh, not a giant amount will get accomplished. It's a chance for uh, legislators in an election year to parade themselves around for the cameras and and uh, get quotes that can be used in campaign literature as they move into the Oregon primary season in May and then on towards the elections in November of 24. In the intervening time between the elections and the January ledge days, there will be the short session, as you and I already talked about, and then a number of other ledge days that come, legislative days that come on a fixed calendar. There will be more and more pandering to the cameras and pandering for sound bites and things that can be used on election uh, literature as it gets closer and closer. We have our primaries in May, our filing dates um, to, to seek office to put one's name forward for election. Uh, are occurring in the spring, in March, and already people are beginning to stake out um, seats for office. We've got our three highest elected offices, uh, absent the governor, all uh, turning over. We've got our state treasurer running for secretary of state. We've got a sitting senator running for treasurer. We've got the speaker of the House of Representatives running for the attorney general. And so this is going to be the mother of all robust legislative, I mean, of uh, election cycles with massive amounts of money being raised for campaigns and potential ballot measures. Uh, so uh, elections are well underway in Oregon right now. But the, the sort of the, the starting bell of the whole election year are those legislative days that will have already occurred when people hear this broadcast. Is that a good time for me to go see my legislator or is it better to wait and see them in the district? Yes and no. You know that they're all in Salem. But let me just say that with the COVID, 
Salem became a very, Salem is our state capital. That's where our capital building is located. Two things happened simultaneously that has made going to Salem to see one's legislator, a legislator, a daunting experience. The first was COVID. And that building got locked down tighter than a tick under some pretty now in hindsight specious reasoning. Um, if members of leadership in the legislature had had their way, we'd have all been in hazmat suits, you know, those bunny suits that they wear in in uh, silicon wafer fabs. Um, everybody was masked and everybody was this, that, and the other thing. And I mean, it was just silly. Candy bowls had to come off a desk. Nobody could stand within this many feet. And they basically shut down public hearings. And so hearings were conducted during the height of COVID via Zoom, which was all fine and dandy. If you were adroit at manipulating Zoom, you knew when the hearings were, you could get in. The, the technology was not always foolproof. And worse than that, there were notable chairs that if they didn't want to hear an opposing opinion, would truncate the available time for testimony to the absolute bare minimum. So I'm thinking specifically of some House committees, uh, and I'm going to say names. Janelle Bynum, who's now running for Congress, was one of the people who, in my personal observation, made it more difficult rather than less difficult for opposing points of view to weigh in during hearings. And then you add the simultaneous problem that the Capitol building has been under an aggressive, I think, overwrought renovation that was driven largely by Senator Peter Courtney, the Senate president and one of the longest serving legislators in Oregon's history, his desire to turn a an old building into a, um, a seismically uh, impregnable building. And we have spent, I have no idea how much has actually been spent, even though I was the chair of the budget writing committee on the Senate side, we asked for detailed reports and those were so shrouded in mystery and, and fragmented in their display that I can't honestly tell you how much that building has cost to this point in time. I'm guessing somewhere in the area of north of $400 million. Uh, the central core of that building is brick. Um, th there were all kinds of problems. We could have used that building for ceremonial purposes and built a modern, technologically equipped, high-rise office building across the street that would have served much more functionally than the mess we've got right now. The, the house offices in the remodel are way too small, and that was done because Speaker of the House Jeff Merkley was contemplating running for the Senate and didn't want to have to answer for extravagant improvements to the house side of the building. Uh, the Senate offices are more commodious, but still a little problematic in their layout. Um, the, 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 the wiring and the insulation and the water, and there are just all kinds of things with the, wrong with the building. Um, it has historic value and for some legislators, tremendous sentimental value. But again, I think it could have been uh, used as a, a ceremonial place. Even truck legislators from a modern office building across the street 
and have them do business in the chambers, which are very impressive and very attractive and very, um, they, you, you know you're in a building where important things are done by virtue of how um, elaborate and attractive and historic the two chambers are, the House and the Senate. But going back to my original thinking here, uh, you had COVID, you had construction, and then a layer of security has been smeared over that building like hot butter on, I mean, like butter on hot toast. I went down there the other day and I served in that building for two plus decades. I got accosted by the security guard, shaken down like I was, you know, some kind of, of uh, you know, malfeasor. Um, I had a little tiny, tiny, tiny Swiss army knife on my key ring that my husband had given me. You'd think I was carrying a machete in there by the time they all got done fuming and fussing about this little bitty Swiss army knife. Uh, the security is off-putting, unfriendly, and the building, in my experience, and again, I spent two decades in that building, it is a hostile, unwelcoming building right now. So to answer your question, if you want to see your legislators during ledge days, you know that they are all there. Now, are they actually in the office? Who knows? Uh, those that don't have committee meetings might not be. Um, but the legislature is by and large all there on uh, legislative days, the Senate more predictable than the House. Um, seeing them in the district is somewhat difficult. And by in the district, just to explain to people who may be new to this concept, Oregon is divided into legislative districts. There are 30 Senate districts and there are 60 House districts. Each House district has a state representative and each Senate district has a state senator. So there are two state representatives to each Senate district. Right now, everybody's out campaigning. They're doing town halls and that sort of stuff, but there's still this sort of mythology that we can't meet our constituents in public because ooh, it, COVID. And so many more legislators are now going to Zoom engagements or they're relying on letters and blast emails. It used to be that you could pretty predictably count on finding your legislator, whether it's House or Senate, doing town halls throughout their district, and now not so much. But I think, and I say this without fear of contradiction, that during the election, when the entire House is up and a big chunk of the Senate is up for re-election, legislators are remarkably more inclined to interact with their constituents. The day after the election, not so much, but it is during this interregnum, this period of time between the elections, uh, as, as November of 2024 is looming, uh, legislators and their staffs better be pretty damned attuned to what their constituents are thinking and how their constituents want to interact with them. The other thing that's happening is that all of these legislators that are running for Congress or for the Senate or for statewide office are out asking for money. And right now, a couple of things. Um, everybody can see who has given in past campaigns because Oregon has this very elaborate reporting system that can be found on the Secretary of State's website. So you can see who has donated to what campaign, how much, and some information about the donor. 
on that website out of state donations appear in red. So it's easy to see who's being funded, for example, by the Drug Policy Alliance, which are the national organization pro-drug people. Uh, Tina Kotek's taken a lot of money from them. Um, a lot of our legislators took a lot of, of uh, what's called DPA, the D Drug Policy Alliance money. So you can go through and you can take a look at the people that were sponsored or, or not sponsored, but were contributed to by drug organizations by looking at who their donors are. Lamoda, uh, in my view, a very corrupt um, uh, cannabis operation, uh, was one of the largest contributors to Governor Kotek and contributed to lots of legislators. The Drug Policy Alliance is the group that paid to take some of our legislators on DPA's dime to Lisbon, Portugal, to look at the drug problem. Now, you tell me that that's not a heavy opportunity to influence legislators' opinions. I wish that legislators were paying more attention to what was going on at 3rd and Davis in in Oregon than they were sitting in some tapas bar in Lisbon. But the long and the short of it is anybody who is approached for money right now ought to ask the fundamental question of the person asking them, uh, where do you stand on reform of ballot measure 110? And if you get weenie answers like it just needs more time, or we're gonna expand penalties for drug dealing, or we're gonna ban outdoor use of drugs, keep your checkbook in your pocket. Those are code words for we're not gonna do a damn thing. Um, it's gonna drive the use of drugs back into alleys and into tents paid for by the county, paid for by taxpayers. And out of public view, it is not going to ameliorate or mitigate the amount of drugs that are being consumed and all of the criminal behavior fallout and mental illness that's gonna stem from the usage of these lethal drugs. So ask people about um, where they stand on ballot measure 110. So candidate XYZ calls up and says, I'm running for reelection, would you make a contribution to my campaign? Ask them. I don't think you need to search real hard to see the problems with Oregon's drug uh, decriminalization and this failed experiment that ballot measure 110 is. So don't be shy about asking people where they stand and don't let them give some lame, wimpy answer about, well, we'll have to wait and see what the legislature proposes. Well, I, I cannot understand how a legislator could take any degree of pride, especially an urban legislator representing downtown Portland in going down and seeing the apocalyptic environment that exists in parts of, of urban tri-county area. Um, it, is, it is shocking. And I don't know how I could have gone home to my constituents when I was still in the Senate and said to them, I think this is okay. This isn't. It's inhumane. It's deadly. Lives are being lost. Streets are unsafe. It is time to fix and improve ballot measure 110. And if anybody seeking money from any potential donor can't answer without equivocation, don't give them a dime. Thanks for listening to What's Up with Betsy Johnson. If you have comments or questions about this podcast, please email questions, Q-U-E-S-T-I-O-N-S, at BetsyJohnson.com.